Choke points. Let's go. We're expecting an El Nino winter season, but we still get snow, even with the uh, warmer air. So is the state ready? Chris has a look at the numbers. And to look back, Dave, it's been dicey over the passes the last couple of years. Remember, we had some record early snowfall and a bunch of pass closures for accidents over the last couple of years. And, of course, the Washington Department of Transportation didn't have enough people to handle it. After the governor's vaccine mandate cut 175 people from WashDOT's maintenance staff, the Winter Ops Division went into last winter down more than 200, make that to winter of 2021, down more than 200 people. Last year, WashDOT was still down more than 120. But WashDOT's Tina Werner says this year the agency is only down about 25. We have largely returned to a normal or pre-pandemic Uh, point of staffing for our winter maintenance roles that are most directly involved in snow and ice. We have uh, right around uh, 1,550 winter maintenance folks that are on board, roughly 81 more that are working this year compared to last winter. Werner says the winter ops team is in pretty good shape heading into the season, but it still needs mechanics and people with an up-to-date commercial driver's license. There is a nationwide shortage of people in these jobs. We're going to continue to aggressively recruit for those positions, but overall, we're looking pretty good going into this winter season. If you're considering a job with WashDOT in the winter operations or just in general, WashDOT still offers CDL training for new and existing hires to help fill those jobs. We roughly put about 100 folks every winter through that in-house CDL training program. It's something that we we look to develop within our um, existing workforce and give folks more of an opportunity to see what it's like to be able to operate a snowplow and other really critical winter snow and ice equipment on our roadways. So if you have no experience, like like even driving a truck, they will train you? Yes, Yes, they put people through that CDL training, uh, hmm. and then, you know, that's good even if you were to leave the agency, you know, a year later or whatever. But, yeah, they they, they need bodies, <laughs> and they need people with those CDLs, and if they can get them in-house and train them, yeah, that's uh, that that's a pretty good opportunity. And so they're still looking to do some for hiring. I mean, they've got 25 openings right yeah. now, Those and so that's always a good option for people. You know. Any idea what that pays? Uh, I don't have the numbers offhand, but it's, I mean, it's pretty good, pretty good work yeah. a lot, and some of it can be seasonal too. I mean, uh, they are hiring part-time and full-time, but they need a lot of full-time CDL folks. So that is a pretty good option for you. Uh, but of course, WashDOT can only do so much to keep the roads open with the plows and the trucks and the sanding and all that stuff. Werner says drivers play a huge role in this. They need to be prepared for winter driving and they need to follow the chain requirements and other restrictions. Many of the mountain pass closures that we see, generally speaking, are due to poor driver behavior. And the state patrol has confirmed this. You know, it's often looking like folks driving too fast for conditions. They're going way too fast on snow and ice. There is also distraction and impairment, which, of course, do not mix with snow and ice in in addition to everything else. Overconfidence in four-wheel or all-wheel drive is also an issue. And Warner says it doesn't really take much to close a mountain pass. And it really only takes one person that can close down a pass for all of us. So it's in everyone's best interest to be prepared. We've seen it before. Car without chains maybe starts to spin out and then stop. The truck that's behind that barely making it up with chains starts losing momentum. Somebody going a little fast can't stop in time. It's all it takes. So WashDOT says it's ready. Let's make sure that we are too as we head up into the mountains. Good advice. Thank you, Chris. We're going to go to the conflict in Gaza. There's growing pressure for a humanitarian pause. And I asked CBS's 
Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem, if that's going to happen. It's been talked about for the last few days, and that it would also apparently include the uh, release of the 15 to 10 to 15 hostages. And the uh, director of the CIA is uh, in Qatar. Uh, today holding talks about this. That said, you know, we've had these reports before and then it's kind of fallen apart at the last minute. So it's really hard to tell how close they really are to an agreement. Israel is very hesitant. Uh, on one hand, it wants the hostages out. Uh, Hamas is holding 240 hostages. At the same time, Israel is concerned that a pause in the fighting might allow Hamas uh, to rearm. And they say that they're making a lot of progress in fighting Hamas and getting you know, rid of the tunnels that Hamas is using underneath Gaza. So Israel is very hesitant about a pause. Um, although uh, it's clear that that's what the United States wants, that's what the international community wants. Right. Do you have a handle on what the fighting is like? I understand there, uh, the IDF has entered Gaza. As you say, they're fighting in the tunnels. Is Has this all gone uh, underground? Is there still active aerial bombing going on? What can you tell us? There's still active aerial bombing. I was actually at the border yesterday, and every few seconds there is the boom of the uh, Israeli artillery, and it's really loud. And at the same time, there's fighting on the ground. There are Israeli tanks and armored uh, troops are in Gaza, well into Gaza City, really fighting against Hamas. Israel has been hesitant to enter the tunnels from past experience. That That's sort of a trap for the Israeli soldiers. Uh, 34 Israeli soldiers have been killed since the ground invasion started on October 27th. But Israel has said that it wants to try to uh, solve the situation without actually entering the tunnels. That said, there are still thousands of Hamas fighters that are believed to be in the tunnels. I just spoke to a former head of, of a former brigadier general, and he said that the fighting is far from over. Yeah. I read this extraordinary New York Times piece about how Israeli intelligence actually telephoned uh, a guy who uh, lived in an apartment block and ordered him to evacuate the building because they're about to bomb it. And then uh, since he did such a good job, they uh, again called on him to evacuate other buildings. Is this actually going on where intelligence will will call uh, civilians and say, your building's next to get out now? Oh, definitely. I mean, in fact, that's been going on for a long time. You know, Israel's been carrying out aerial strikes in Gaza for years, not at this pace, obviously. Mm -hmm. And Israel is trying to minimize the civilian deaths. So uh, it's done all the time. The other thing that Israel, beyond the calls, but it's not, which they're, it's not clear if they're still doing it, doing it now, is they'll drop a small bomb on the building to encourage people to leave. Uh, but they definitely are calling people, telling them to evacuate. One of the things we saw in the last, uh, you know, 24 hours or so is that the remaining approximately 200,000 civilians in northern Gaza are now leaving and going towards the south. The UN says that they simply can't take in any more civilians. They're, they're in U.N. schools and all kinds of U.N. facilities. There's not enough uh, infrastructure. You're talking about four toilets for thousands of people. Wow. Uh, and so uh, the, those who are still remaining in the north have now decided that it's really not safe to stay there anymore. CBS is Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. That New York Times story is, is really remarkable. Apparently, Israeli intelligence has a list of trusted Palestinians. They know where they live, know who their families are, 
know they can be trusted. And so the cell phone will ring and say, this is Israeli intelligence. Your building is going to be bombed in an hour. Yeah. We want you to go and uh, evacuate it. And this is the story of this one guy who evacuated his own building and then was basically enlisted to start evacuating others. And mm. like hundreds, he got hundreds of people out mm-hmm. uh, in time. And, and, and also he... He was a little reluctant because the apparently the intelligence service says it was up to him to give the all clear. So he's in a position of saying the building's wow. evacuated and basically saying okay to bomb. And he, he found that to be a, a real moral dilemma. Absolutely. How long has he been involved with Israeli He said sources? it came out of the blue. Oh. So he was just re- apparently recruited on the spot. I don't know. but Scary. Really strange. Yeah. Time for the Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. A new campaign at a Minnesota college is connecting students and fostering belonging with something a lot of people carry this time of year. A simple tube of lip balm. CBS affiliate WCCO has the story. Hi is a two-letter word often used to greet people. Saying hi is such an easy thing that all of us can do every day. But how often are people interacting with one another? As I was walking around the North Loop and I realized like no one's actually talking, no one's communicating. From this, Kind Lips was born in 2017, a chapstick that serves as a reminder to be kind every time you put it on. Joshua Newman also started the Be Kind, Say Hi initiative, a street sticker campaign reminding people to look up and say hi. Stickers like this popped up across the North Loop, 70 miles away at Gustavus Adolphus College. Kate Dario was also trying to build connections. We're just trying to create more kindness for the students on campus here. With the help of Molly Milinkovic, the Be Kind Say Hi stickers popped up around campus. You'll see people look down and then look up to see if there's someone else in front of them to greet. It was such a hit, Newman made the trip to see the students signing a kindness pledge. All you have to do is sign your name. Name after name. The board filled up, and in return, kind lips. I got peach. Awesome. It's just a reminder to, like, there's people here, and it's not a hard thing to be nice to other people. Connecting in new ways, all thanks to a small gift with a big message. That is from WCCO in Minnesota. And now the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9 o'clock. Here is Ursula Reutin, Good who's morning. been watching the election results. Yes. Uh, latest ballot drop apparently didn't change much in the city council raises, so it looks like the it's a uh, clean sweep. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> <laughs> you look really happy. Maybe even too happy. I have never been this happy on an off-year election with the results, in particular, city of Seattle. I was hoping two years ago, I started talking about this on our show, saying this is our chance. Those of us who vote in the city of Seattle, this is our chance to make a real difference in terms of the future of the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think that the city council plays a big fat role in that. And I think a lot of people, I mean, Democrats, independents voting because that's the majority in the city of Seattle, um, were saying we might be liberal, but this has just gone too far. <laughs> this is not this, what we asked no, for. No, this has gone way too far. I mean, is the crime better? No, it's gotten worse. Is the homelessness crisis better? No, it's gotten worse. Uh, are we more business friendly? No, it's gotten worse. Uh, is downtown ever going to recover from the pandemic? Not the way it's going right now. So I think a lot of people are looking like, I'm not happy with this council. There was a, there was a poll before the vote, before the election, and t- only 20% of those polled said they thought the city council was doing a good job. 
I just was holding my breath mm-hmm. because I know I've been disappointed before. Um, but I'm really happy that I think it's moderating. Now, you have some pretty good contacts in the law enforcement community. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> is, this a, is this a morale booster? I think it's going to be. Um, I, one of the big things that I kept hearing over and over again is, you know, especially in 2020 and 2021, um, the whole defund the police and the, the feeling that there were members of the city council that were actively against the police department. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to be able to bring that up anymore. I mean, I, I think we're still feeling the repercussions of all of that. And, and I want to just be real clear. As much as I was against defunding the police, I'm all in favor of trying to reform and improve the culture That's within exactly the police right. department. We got too black and white on the issue, right? Exactly. Where it was either all or nothing. It was either we have homeless encampments everywhere or shelters everywhere, police everywhere, or no police everywhere. And yeah, what we're seeing is a moderating effect of yes. that of that swinging. Yes. So when I say hope springs eternal, I'm I'm just I I was hoping that. The latest counts wouldn't change the races. I'm, <laughs> I mean, there's one race where uh, one incumbent, Dan Strauss, looks like he probably will pull it off uh, if the trends continue. But I mean, he's in it with, uh, is it Pete Hanning? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's within just a couple dozen. Yeah, but he had an, an epiphany, right? Exactly. And he went from defund the police to <laughs> hell no. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> Exactly. And, and I'm glad that you pointed out that because you can't have revisionist history. Now, just admit it. Just say, you know what? I was yeah. wrong on that. And accountability, too. I mean, hope springs eternal. We will have a almost brand new Seattle City Council. But the only way the change is going to do anything significant is if there's accountability. Exactly. So we can't let up on saying, hey, Dan, didn't you say this? Exactly. Why'd you change now? I mean, we did interview him. Nice guy. Great ideas about building housing, but couldn't answer a question to save his life. Typical politician, right? So that accountability still needs to be there. No matter how much you like the council and the candidates who are winning, you have to push them. It, exactly. And you know how often you, you see the text line, how often people will say, oh, Seattle voters, you get what you deserve. Well, I think Seattle voters are saying, look, this is not what we wanted. And uh, we need to bring back pragmatism, results and get rid of all the performative stuff. Yeah. And also realize, too, that it's not about retaliation. Just because Seattle went through a progressive, socialist, no. whatever you want to call it, city council, that was something that the city tried. It didn't work, yeah. clearly, and so we're voting over again. And so, yeah, I I agree with you, and I think the G and Ursula show do a great job of taking the tribalism that has gripped the country and has gripped local politics and going, no, there's a middle ground, just yes. like we're finding here. Exactly, yeah. How many people voted, by the way? Not the enough. Do you Not know enough. how we were groveling the day before and the day of the election, begging people to vote. Yeah. I, I, I've mentioned it on our show. There was a time I couldn't vote. I, I was a German citizen, wasn't an American citizen until uh, the late 90s. And I couldn't vote. I was working here, seeing, going through each, each election, reporting on elections like, man. It stinks not to have a vote. <laughs> and I cannot believe anyone would give up that yeah. opportunity. But we did turn a few people around. They said, because of you, oh, because really? of your hounding, we you. did vote. So, so what's the number? What's the voter I, turnout? I think we might crack 40 percent. 40 percent. Yikes. So six and 10 ballots went into the recycle. If yes. that, probably yes. somebody just threw them in the garbage. 
It's crazy. What more can you do? I know. They deliver it to you. They pay for your postage. So, okay, it means my vote uh, counts for more. I guess It is the easiest place in the country to vote. It is. Thank you, Ursula. Thank you. You're Ursula at 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. With Veterans Day upon us, we thought we'd call up the disabled American veterans to find out how they help. And their chief communications and outreach officer is Dan Clare. Welcome, Dan. And uh, first of all, tell us about the the uh, organization and what your role is. Sure. Um, I'm a spokesperson for DAV. I work with uh, our outreach to make sure veterans know about the services we provide. DAV is a 100-year-old organization, and we're focused on keeping promises to veterans. We help over a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. We're there in Seattle. Um, we're all over the country. We're helping veterans get their benefits. We're helping them get to the medical appointments they have. Um, we're also helping veterans um, with employment, connecting them with employers, educating employers about the value of hiring veterans. And lately, we've been into entrepreneurship and and even more recently, helping caregivers. Entrepreneurship? What do you mean? Sure. Uh, DAV uh, helps veterans. We help make business accessible for veterans who want to find their own companies. So we we have three cohorts. We have a program called DAV Patriot Bootcamp. We have about three cohorts a year, and we're helping between 30 and 50 veterans in each cohort um, connect with resources, find out about funding, um, government contracting, marketing, branding, um, just the the basic tools they need to start a business so they can become benefits providers and job creators. That is really cool. And I had a question, too, about your outreach to employers and the value of of hiring a veteran. Is there still discrimination? And, and what do you tell employers? There, There is. Unfortunately, we see that when if a veteran were to post about PTSD, for instance, mm-hmm. on their social networks, mm-hmm. um, we're finding less likely to hire them. Unemployment is pretty good nationwide, but there's still that stigma. And one of the things we say is that there, there are two Invisible injuries that are very prevalent in the United States, one is traumatic brain injuries, um, and one is post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the most common cause of that in the United States is car accidents. It's, it's, it's automobile accidents. You'd never not hire someone because they were an auto accident. Unfortunately, if someone has PTSD or a traumatic brain injury from military service, there's that crazy veteran thought that is just it's fairly pervasive and and it makes it a lot harder for veterans um, to reintegrate to civilian life. That's too bad because, too, then if they stop talking about it, then their symptoms get worse. So it's a double edged sword there. So it's it's nice that you're getting the word out about that. I'm curious. I want to ask you, I mean, I'm not saying don't talk about it, but. Do you need to post about it on social media? Yeah, because then you influence other people, right? <laughs> but I mean, you, you, if you want to talk about it, talk about it in person. But if it's if it's going to hurt your prospects, I, however wrong it is mm. of people to react that way, you know, don't stack the deck against yourself. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think part of uh, DAV was the organization that funded the research that led to PTSD being recognized and talking about mental health is a very important aspect of, of the human experience. Um, I, I see your point that, you know, it's, you know, you don't want to say basically lead into anything that, that I'm a crazy veteran kind of thing. Um, I think people should be able to talk about, talk about it. Um, 
it, it's just I don't think that employers should look at that and say, well, this person's going to, you know, come in and shoot up the office one of these days if we hire them. Absolutely right. So uh, the DAV also is in need of volunteers. Uh, tell me about what you what programs you have there. We're constantly looking for volunteers. We've seen a decline in volunteerism um, with COVID, unfortunately. Um, there in Seattle, we have a great transportation network that helps veterans get the care there. And without this program, a lot of veterans would not make it to their medical appointments. So it's accessing the care that they've earned that's sometimes life-changing uh life-affirming care um in the lifetime of that program DVs provide more than eighty-eight thousand rides um to seattle's uh, medical center alone they've driven 5.1 million miles but we need help this year we've driven uh, about eleven thousand miles getting veterans to and from their appointments but the it, we rely on volunteers for that program we donate vans to the department of veterans affairs um, and, and then we have this great core of people who come in and they're willing to give some of them three or four days a week just getting veterans to and from their appointments. So we need help with that program. The people who participate in that program as volunteers usually say they get more out of it than the veterans they're serving, which is incredible when you consider how life changing or, or how, what that does to the quality of life for the veterans they help. Now, I know however well-intentioned the Veterans Administration is to provide these benefits, sometimes it gets complicated. Do you offer support for people who are just confused by the details of uh, of accessing their benefits? It's extremely complicated. They're on 2nd on Avenue. Um, we have a DAV National Service Office. Um, those are That's staffed with two veterans, Ross and Jordan, who have been through the benefits process themselves. And then they went through an extensive training program to be attorneys, in fact, this, like every service DAV offers, is free, but here you have some advocates right there in town who are going to help you walk through that process. It's it's complicated. Uh, the VA, uh, God bless them, They're, they do a lot of good work, um, but it's a bureaucracy, and, and getting your benefits isn't a guarantee. So we want veterans not to go it alone. We want them to reach out to our service office there and get help. And the, and the service provided by the Veterans Administration, there was a period where it seemed to be embroiled in scandal after scandal after scandal because of delays in service, et cetera. Have they, have they worked through that now? It's gotten a lot better. Um, of course, now we, we've seen this PACT Act come in. So there's uh, all these presumptive conditions that we know are related to toxic exposures. And veterans are getting in um, to get their benefits. Um, they're getting in to get their care. Um, Seattle's known for having a great VA, um, but it's something where we always have to keep an eye on things. Um, and that's part of the reason why DAV exists. We're, we're a legislative body as well. We're lobbying for veterans in Washington, D.C. to make sure that the funding's there so that veterans can get the care they need. And, and fortunately, um, we're doing more right now than we have in history to help veterans. It doesn't mean the needs don't go away, but we're doing a whole lot better. And for people who want to volunteer, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you, Dan? You can always visit DAV.org, whether you're looking for benefits help, if you want jobs information. Um, but also, if you're interested in volunteering, you can visit volunteerforveterans.org. Um, or if you know someone who needs help, that's a great place to go. You can reach out to us, and, and we'll try and connect people with help. We have we have eight chapters just there around SeaTac. So there's, there's plenty of people out there to help. Um, please let us know, and, and we're happy to connect you with chapters and, and, and get the community behind you. Dan Clare is the Chief Communications and Outreach Officer for DAV. Dan, thank you. God bless you. Thank you all. I hope your Veterans Day period is great. 
And that's Mickey time. Get it, Dave. Mickey Gomez is here to talk about millennial credit card debt. And also oh. joining us is prominent local millennial, David Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. So uh, what's the problem here? Yeah, so credit card debt went up again for a third quarter. And so did the number of people missing their credit card payments. Yahoo Finance says that uh, credit card balances rose $48 billion in the third quarter to pushing it over $1.08 trillion. Since there are 48 billion millennials, that's only $1 per millennial. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. You would what, think, no? What makes it record debt? How does it compare to, say, other years or decades? How do they compare it? Well, they're comparing it. that They're saying that year by year, it just keeps going up and up and up. And what is more comparable now is that these payments are being missed. Not only are not only is this particular generation missing their credit card payments, they're also starting to miss their mortgage payments and their car payments and they're not able to make some of their student loan payments. Yikes. Well, yeah. but this What's is the, the stage reason? of life that that you're you're starting a house. I mean, you just got married, right? So you got huge bills from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, what what this really demonstrates to me is specifically the younger side of millennials and, and into Gen Z. We have no financial literacy, specifically when it mm-hmm. comes to credit card and credit card debt, and what credit card debt amounting means. I think Florida uh, is the only state that requires uh, the teaching of financial literacy in high school. Wow, go Florida. Yeah. I expect that. I know. It's, yeah, that, that's a huge that? surprise. So well, you weren't taught to balance a checkbook? You no. weren't taught about interest rates and that if you don't pay... you None of that. No, I learned about that in not. home economics. I learned how to do a checkbook. I learned how to fill out my taxes. I learned how oh, to fill taxes? out a 1040EZ. Wow. I learned how to do, uh, you know, how to... have how to um, put money in a savings account. And, and I learned the, that is where I learned the rule of 72. What's, what's that? Interest. The rule of 72 is, is your interest rate. So you take the number of interest rates. So let's say the bank gives you 1%. You take 72 divided by one. It's going to take you 72 years for your balance to double. I see. And it also works for debt as well. So let me get this clear, David, you were never taught that in order to say, write a check, there had to be money in your account. (laughs) Well, I think that's that should be assumed, hopefully, okay. uh, if you have common sense. But no, I was there was no at no point, no classes available at any point in my junior high, my high school years, not even in college years. I mean, unless you wanted to go into business and economics mm-hmm. that allowed you to learn even the basics about this kind of stuff and coming from a, a family that. You know, hopefully none of hopefully they are listening and and no offense taken (laughs) did not also teach me any of this stuff. This is stuff that I didn't learn until just a couple years ago when I started working a little bit in real estate for real estate agents. And they obviously know much more about that. And now it's too late. I already have the debt and I'm still trying to dig my way out of it. And it's credit card debt, Uh, credit card debt, student loan debt, Mm -hmm. uh, the mostly I do not own a home, uh, which, of course, I don't. Uh, Is part of it that. You feel, okay, the debt's racked up. Now I got student loan. I can't buy it. What's the point? Is it is it that? Is there an attitude of what's the point in paying it off? Uh, no, it's it's living, specifically living in Seattle, uh, trying to just make ends meet and not having enough to make more than the minimum payment I see. Uh, from it. And, and it was early on in my 20s, you know, kind of willy-nilly spending on credit cards and not understanding 
what then the the interest was going to cause yeah. to to the to the already existing debt. Maybe we a, should yeah. create like an adopt a millennial program where those with finance. <laughs> I'm serious, yeah. you know, no, like, no, like a mentor because you can't depend on parents and, and make it in the yeah, system. and make it required. Make it yeah. okay. We're gonna you are able to sign up for these, you know, for these federal loans and, and things. But well, they do have what, those classes that you're supposed to take before you um, accept student loans. And they even have classes that you take when you, you're supposed to take your financial aid class. Once you're once you graduate and go through a course, millennials seem to have the biggest amount of student loan debt, which is driving this financial pitfall. Uh, there's also the highest co- higher cost of living. There's higher cost for food. I mean, inflation is just driving and and putting a lot of pressure on this particular generation. I mean, boomers, boomers seem to be set for the most part, not all boomers. Yeah. Uh, Gen uh, Gen X, my generation, I mean, we're still working and we're trying to save, but we're saving, a lot of us are saving responsibly. I'm not saying that I'm not in debt. I am in debt, but I did I, I think that home economic class that I took when I was a young girl mm-hmm. really helped. I did have one friend, though, who when she got to college, got all these credit cards and she said, look, it's free money. And I go, it's not free money. Somebody has to pay for it. It's going on your credit score. What's a credit score? Yeah. Hmm. Scary times. Well, uh, for millennials listening, the current uh, maximum credit card rate is 27%. So if you don't play your ballot off, that's what they're charging you. So take 27% divided by your balance. And that's how long it's going to take you to pay it off. And your balance also doubles when you don't pay it off on time. Wow. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.